Hey there, what's happening? I'm Jamie. Welcome to the Everything 80s podcast and part one of this new mini-series called From Dial-Up to Satellites, the story of the very early internet. So in today's episode, we are looking a quick look at the actual development of the internet itself and Tim Berners-Lee, who is really the godfather of the internet. It's not Al Gore, as he would have you believe. Then we're going to look into the early days of the World Wide Web and specifically Netscape and how that brought the internet really to the world. So before we start, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I should be there. Okay, here we go. So as I mentioned, the internet, as we know it, starts with Tim Berners-Lee, who is from England around the Dorset area. He worked in computers a majority of his life, and one of his early jobs was creating software for printers and things like that. He had a huge uh, promotion, I guess, or career advancement as he became an independent contractor for CERN, the you know, multi-conglomerate scientific facility that spans a couple countries and has collaborations from all around the world. They have the large Hadron Collider, if you've ever seen that, which spins the molecules around over the course of like 30 kilometers. And the fact that he got in there showed his insights and advancement into everything tech-related and specifically with computers. So that's based in Geneva. While he was there, this is December 1980. While he's there, he proposes this project based on this new concept called hypertext. And that is a way for computers to you know, share files and send updates and information among researchers and how they can all be connected together. So he built a prototype system that he called Enquire, E-N-Q-U-I-R-E. So this is, you know, very, very primitive days of what the internet would become. He would end up leaving CERN in late 1980, and then he went to work for another computer systems company. He'd just sort of do this menial work and run the technical side of the company for a few years. And this gave him more insights into computer networking and how you could actually connect computers together. So in 1984, he goes back to CERN, sort of like a, almost a consultant, if you will. So fast forward a few years into 1989. At this point, CERN has developed what we now know as the internet, more in that they were connecting computers together between different countries and cities and researchers just for a way for scientists to share information. And at that point, CERN was sort of the largest, I guess they call it like the internet node, sort of like the hub in all of Europe. So now that CERN has advanced this ability to connect computers together Tim Berners-Lee remembers that hypertext idea he had that now you could send what they would call links and you could connect research together quicker. You wouldn't have to send bigger files. You could send a link and someone could click on that and go to another page. They could access whatever you you had, wanted. I mean, everything was text-based. There was no video or, or giant files like that. So... Basically, everything to do with the internet comes down to this hypertext idea. And he presented the idea and even gave it the name, the World Wide Web, early on. 
And it was as simple, without having to go too much into the technical aspects, it was as simple as um, connecting it to a domain name system, the ability to connect these hypertext links. That's basically all the internet was. Most of the technology was already there. Everything was in place. He just had to sort of connect it together, like the computers, the network, the hypertext. That It was all, I don't want to say simple, but was right in front of them the whole time, and he just connected all the dots. Realizing this, he puts together a proposal in March 1989 and then distributes it among the you know scientists and managers around CERN. And basically, this was the straight proposal for the internet. And they, I mean, not surprisingly, with any new forms of technology, they were like, oh, it's interesting. It's kind of a vague idea. It could be exciting and, you know, that sort of thing. But as I mentioned, there was also this proposal and that meant he had actually had to put this thing together and, you know, demonstrate what was possible with this hypertext transfer protocol, he called it, or HTTP. This was the birth of the internet. And Tim Berners-Lee published the very first website, which was used to describe what the project was about just to sort of give people information because it was even some of these scientists and computer people couldn't necessarily wrap their heads around what he was trying to do, like connecting all these things and being able to send links and, and directing people to other like web pages. The idea of a web page didn't make any sense, but this is 20th of December, 1990, and it was technically the very first website launched. It was info.cern.ch that was running on one of the next computers at CERN, which would have a big role with Apple and Steve Jobs later in the future. But that very first webpage, the address was http colon double slash info.cern.ch slash hypertext slash www slash the project dot html. This whole website was explaining what the web was. He had come up with a few different ideas for like what to call this thing where everything would be connected together and you could, you know, connect with each other and send these things and whatnot. And they went through different names and eventually it was that that idea of just a web that everything was connected. So on that very first website, it's unfortunately not available. There's no screenshots, there's no original copy of it. We can't really see whatever happened with this thing. But what it did was it told people what the browser was and how you could use it and how you could set up a web server. It also taught you how to get started with your own website and what this could potentially grow into. And like I said, this was, you know, even for people within the industry was seen as just, again, sort of a novelty niche idea. So the early days of the internet, again, now it is established as the World Wide Web is purely for scientists and research and sharing information and things like that. So this is all good, but without a good infrastructure and a way to navigate it, it really wasn't anything to write home about. There wasn't, you know, there was a lot of information out there, but how did you kind of put it all together? And how did you really connect with other people or how did you connect with these web pages and things like that. And that brings us more into the Netscape world and the idea of the very first internet browser. And what's important about this is Netscape is not only 
bringing the World Wide Web to the world. It's also the origin story for really every modern tech company. Every tech, internet-based, any startup, any big Silicon Valley, whatever you've you know heard of or seen these giant billion-dollar companies, they can all trace their roots back to Netscape. And just with this sort of simple trajectory, like when we talk about Silicon Valley and billion-dollar valuations, usually it goes like this. You form a startup, you get venture capital backing, you release a product, it grows like wildfire, you become darlings of the tech world, you gain millions of users, you go public, you become a billionaire. And we've heard that story a million times. We've seen that blueprint for every big successful company from Amazon to Facebook, all of those. But it wasn't always like this. It all starts with Netscape and it starts with a guy named Mark Andreessen. So he was a guy obsessed with computers. And computers, again, at that point are a real sort of niche hobby and they're not accessible for the masses. And if you were involved in computers, you had to have a high level of skill to operate them. And having the skill and and being connected and networking with like-minded people he became aware of the internet and the World Wide Web, and they were using it because he worked in the industry. And that was the way that, you know, again, information was being shared now specifically because his passion took him to the National Center for Supercomputing Applications or the NCSA in Chicago. So this is 1992, and Tim Berners-Lee has just basically put out the internet in 1990. So very, very early days. And because now all these networks were being able to connect together, there had to be, again, those like central hubs, like we mentioned CERN. Uh, CERN was one of the big European hubs. And it wasn't, you know, you couldn't, there was no Wi-Fi, you couldn't go into a coffee shop and connect or whatever. So the NCSA in Chicago had one of the fastest internet connections in North America. So if you wanted to work in computers, in science, connect with these communities, connect with these scientists, these researchers and the programmers, you had to go work for the NCSA because that was the only way to have enough computing power and enough um, internet power to be able to network that way. So he, Mark Andreessen, was one of the first student computer programmers at the NCSA. So Again, the computers are connected together through the internet, but there wasn't an effective platform to connect everything you found online. There were, you know, early, early web browsers and Tim Berners-Lee had put one together, but there was no way to just sort of package all the information up and present it in one web page that you could look at. So while he was doing mindless coding work, Andreessen had been you know, using his spare time or when he wasn't working on what he was supposed to be, he was fully immersing himself in the World Wide Web and seeing that this is not only connecting the science and the tech people, but this could potentially connect the entire world together. He, it's not that other people didn't know this was a possibility, but he was the one who really started to kind of 
um, connect the dots into what was possible to create this connection between someone sitting in a room in Chicago and connecting with someone who had the same interest in Sydney, Australia. Again, the whole idea of the internet was just for science and research. So he believed he could evolve the web quicker and he could turn it into something more useful. So that meant they had to create a better web browser because what was out there just wasn't cutting it. The internet is nothing if there isn't the software to both navigate and view it. All those hypertext links and all those web pages and the ability to create a web page that Tim Berners-Lee had, you know, developed and instructed people on, it didn't really mean that much if people couldn't easily access it or, or view it in one place. If, if it was spread over multiple pages and multiple websites, there was nothing um, making it connect together seamlessly. And again, there were early web browsers, but they were the same thing. They were super clunky. They were, you had to basically be a data scientist to work through it. And at this point, he wasn't the only one with this idea, but the people who were also, there were dozens of people trying to create new web browsers, but they were, again, doing it for the same crowd. They were making it for the computer literate. Andreessen realized if this thing is going to grow, if this is, he wasn't thinking business yet, but if this thing was going to reach all areas of the world, it had to appeal to the common person. So in his own words, he decided to let the riffraff in, and that meant building a user-friendly browser that could show the world what this internet was truly capable of. Again, as each year was going by, actually as each like few months were going by, the technology was growing and advancing. Now there was the possibility that you could have images and graphics and videos and, and news and real-time updates. So the browser had to have all that put together so you could see everything that made the internet so great that no one knew about. It took over a month of coding around the clock, but a browser was finally finished. They would call it XMosaic, as it was meant to work with XWindow, which was a popular graphic user interface with Unix users. This new browser was officially launched on Saturday, January 23rd, 1993. Again, not the world's first web browser, but miles better than anything else out there. This was the first of its kind. And besides Andreessen, it was built by just a small little team in a basement in that computer um, networking hub in Chicago. And this thing caught on really quickly. Within 18 months, their new browser was the hottest thing on the World Wide Web. Again, there were very few websites when they started, but now, since the internet was easier to access, tens of thousands of new sites were being created all the time. Mosaic was how many people first saw the World Wide Web. Some say that their browser really helped to make the web. Again, unless you can see it and access it, it almost doesn't really exist. Mosaic was a software that had to be installed in your computer. So there was a little bit of a barrier to entry. A lot of people still, you know, didn't have a PC in their home, or if they did, they weren't really sure how to navigate it besides using it for games or whatnot. But it was still working. In the first 18 months, 3 million users installed Mosaic. This is really astonishing when you realize how few people were actually on the web in those days. 
It was free to install, but a license fee would be charged to businesses and corporations. By the end of 1994, Mosaic was adding 600,000 new users each month. Again, the web wasn't just for computer nerds. You could search for anything that interests you, and you could now, again, connect with like-minded people from around the world. It took a little while for people to get that in their head. Up to that point, the internet and the web were two separate things. Now, they were pretty much one and the same. There was one issue, though. Andreessen and his team were still technically working for the NCSA, and they didn't see this browser as all that important. To them, it was just a research project. For some reason, they didn't see the massive potential in what was to become the very first true internet startup company. The other problem was it was taking up a lot of their bandwidth and power for something they just saw as a little side hobby that some of these programmers were doing. They knew the World Wide Web was the future, and since the NCSA wasn't taking Mosaic seriously, Andreessen realized he had to leave. They had to strike out on their own. And that's what brought him to Silicon Valley, which used to be a great place for computers and technology. The now famous Tech Valley was nothing to write home about when Andreessen got there in 1994. There had now been a tech recession, and many thought that the idea of the PC was finished, that it was a fad, sort of a flash in the pan. Silicon Valley would become the promised land when you wanted to launch a startup, but this was far from the case going into the mid-90s. Andreessen knew he wanted to be part of a company and take this thing to the world, but that was as far as it went. He didn't know anything about investors or even what a venture capitalist was. Now we enter in to the man, Jim Clark. He had just left a company called Silicon Graphics. This was a billion-dollar company that he helped to start, and they created CGI Animation. You might not know the name, but you've seen their work as they were really brought to the forefront when they created the dinosaurs in the first Jurassic Park movie. And people, if you remember seeing Jurassic Park for the first time and being bewildered with what you were seeing and what computer-generated imagery was capable of, these were the people that did it. He and Andreessen would soon cross paths. Clark had helped build this giant company, but he hadn't gotten rich from it. He needed a new venture, and he didn't know what it should be. A friend of his showed him the Mosaic browser, and then he saw the potential that this World Wide Web really could have. Andreessen and Clark then connected, where it was decided that Andreessen would come up with something and Clark would fund it. Andreessen was still all in on the World Wide Web. The web was growing at a pretty astonishing rate, and this was the time to make a commercial splash. Netscape would start out as Mosaic Communications Corporation in April 1994, so you might wonder why did they have the same name? This is because... Mosaic wasn't like a brand name. It was the name of the open source research project that was basically available to everyone. The problem was there wasn't a certainty if this name could be trademarked, but the NCSA made it too difficult, so the new startup abandoned the name altogether. The first name they came up, came up with was called Mozilla, 
And that no doubt sounds familiar. That will be a future story related to this. But at the time, this was seen as a combination of Mosaic and Godzilla, because their idea is they just wanted to destroy this old sort of foundation of what was the first form of internet that wasn't being taken seriously by the NCSA. Another idea is that it might be a combination of the words Mosaic Killer. Either way, they didn't go with that, and the name Netscape popped up, and they decided that was the one. But fun fact, you can still go onto the web and see a copy of the original Mosaic Communications Corporation website and see what the internet was like in 1994. If you go to mcom.com, this is, again, one of the early, early full-functioning websites. It's um, been had been completely recreated from the original one. So what you're seeing is exactly what existed in 1994. So mcom.com if you want to check that out. So now a team was put together from different parts of the country that would all descend on Silicon Valley. Again, this has been standard practice today, but back then, this group was the very first one to do it, where everyone left from their parts of the country and came to Silicon Valley to create a new team. They had an office above a Mexican restaurant and started the new web browser from scratch. Netscape had become the first true web company, and it would give birth to the dot-com era. Everything that began in that office would create the blueprint for what a modern technology startup would be. The culture they created was young and just out of college. The emphasis was on speed compared to the years that product development used to take. There wasn't a physical product that may take upwards of a decade to develop. The team was dreaming up a product, coding it, and able to release it overnight. With the internet, you now got instant feedback. This allowed you to put out updates the same day if something was wrong, compared to in the old days where you were putting out, say, delivering full software or hardware, and if there's something wrong, you were screwed. This could all be done in real time. Startups used to move at the pace of a snail. Netscape made it lightning fast. So let's look at now the massive success of Netscape and and the continued growth of that new startup culture that they created. The Netscape team created their own schedule that had them working around the clock. Programmers would work 40 straight hours, then try to nap under their desks. They worked 24-7 because that's all they knew coming from college. In the coming years, new Silicon Valley startups would follow this model. Why would they do that? It's because they were reading about this new company and how they were operating. Andreessen would end up on the cover of Fortune magazine. And as the company grew and developed and and was innovating... uh, Journalists, um, publishers were all recording everything that was going on. And even some members of the team were using the very first blogs ever seen on the internet. So everyone was seeing, oh, this is how you make a technology company work. They saw that the Netscape programmers slept a few hours in their office, programmed for 20 straight, then went home and slept for up to 15 hours before repeating the cycle. The new company was getting so much publicity that it was inadvertently influencing the future of the valley. Netscape had also created an extremely informal environment that had things like foosball and air hockey. It was like college because these guys were coming straight out of that environment. Any downtime they had was spent playing the video game Doom and things that you've seen other companies replicate. 
This frat house dynamic would be copied countless amount of times by other startups. When Netscape was released, there was another groundbreaking feature. It would be free. A pro version or versions for business would cost money. When Netscape Navigator launched in October 1994, it caught on like wildfire. In just a few months, 55% of web surfers used it. They were soon making $12 million a quarter. By the end of 1995, they made $45 million. An IPO soon followed, and this was another feature that makes Netscape the true originator of the startup. They were less than 18 months old when they launched their IPO. They didn't even have significant profits, just the prospect of profits to come. The hype over the Netscape IPO made Silicon Valley hot again. When the IPO launched, everyone at Netscape became millionaires overnight, and Jim Clark was a billionaire. In the past, for a company to go public, they would have to show years and years worth of profits, and they would have to be able to keep and sustain those and you know, guarantee to the investors that they were going to continue for years. For most startups, they wouldn't even think about launching an IPO for at least five, maybe 10 years after. That's how it was always done. Netscape, Netscape came in and just turn the entire industry on its head. They didn't even have to guarantee profits because this internet thing was so brand new that everyone was afraid of missing the boat. And the rate of growth and the amount of users coming on a daily basis was absolutely astonishing. And this thing was proven to grow, even though the money wasn't there yet, the future showed that it would be. For further proof how Netscape completely changed the financial world and the tech world. When they went public in 1995, there were around a thousand business plan proposals that were being presented to venture capitalist firm Draper Fisher Jervinson. By 1999, there were more than 12,000. Netscape had started the dot-com era without even realizing it and the frenzy that would result in the entire dot-com bubble. That's a whole other story for later on. In 1998, 139 new venture capitalist firms sprung up with over $17 billion ready to invest. Everyone wanted a piece of the internet. We all know about the oversaturation and the crash that would follow, but the story of Netscape is a look back at all the pieces that were put together that are still followed by startups today. And the reason, honestly that we're able to have this conversation right now and that my voice is able to travel around the world and you can access it. So I'm going to finish it there and that's going to lead into part two, which is how now with these browsers and the internet, how did it get into everybody's home? And that's going to do with the incredible rise of America Online or AOL. So that will be the next episode. So thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. If you've made it this far, maybe you want to go a little further. And I just wanted to mention about the platform I use that helps support podcasts like this and smaller mini series and and specialty shows and stuff like that. It's called patreon.com. And in this sort of giant podcast world with all these celebrities and giant podcast networks it's harder for smaller shows like this to stand out so with patreon it's a way for like a few bucks a month to support this show but also get different bonus audio content at the same time so there are different tiers and different reward levels say like at the boba fett level 
for my show, it gives you access to the Everything 80s Movie Club, where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. So if you want to learn more about that or interested about supporting a show like this, you can go to patreon.com slash 80s, so p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash 80s, or wherever you're listening to this on, there should be a link that'll take you there. But that's it for me. Thank you for listening. Check me out next week with part two.